Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part four of our five-part series on Texas serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, based on a million archived newspaper articles from 40 years ago and the 2019 Netflix docuseries, The Confession Killer, directed by Robert and Taki Oldham. I'm going to take a moment here. Sorry to cut you off. I think I want to just shout you out a little bit. When Muriel's saying, oh, based on a million archived old ass articles it means muriel's doing the real research for this show okay she's not just reading wikipedia or regurgitating she hates getting the credit but it's real you'd really do it okay go back to whatever you want to say i'm glad i married you you're good (laughs) (laughs) today we talk about Uh dark times in the life of young hotshot district attorney vic fiesel the fbi conspiracies, federal grand jury indictments, and Frida Powell, a.k.a. Becky. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, it's time. We got to, it's just been that like gnawing thing in the back of my like spine this whole time. It's just like, oh, poor Becky, you know, this whole, she's just like the ghost of this story, you know. I'm not sure you're going to get what you want, but I appreciate (laughs) you. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, you know who I appreciate? Who? Nancy W. for writing us a really nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Those reviews, uh, you know, they make us feel good and they really do help the show. So we love you guys. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you guys, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't like hearing about those kind of things, you can go ahead and listen to a different podcast. And if you're shocked by what I'm saying, go back and start at episode one of this series, you weirdo. Yeah. And we're going to curse. We're going to joke. Um, and those are just words that I say at the beginning of episodes at this point. Okay. <laughs> All right, Nick, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. In the spring of 1985, Waco DA Vic Fiesel was poking the bear. Mm -hmm. Vic was young, popular, and charming. He was kind of a rising star. He was uh, elected to the office at this really early age, at the age of 32. He had the highest felony conviction rate in the state of Texas for the size of his county, for counties over 100,000. And, you know, his next step was running for higher offices. He had dreams of running for Texas governor or maybe the U.S. Congress or something Mm, like that. mm -hmm. But now, in his early career, he was taking on a hot potato. Convicted serial killer Henry Lee Lucas had confessed to hundreds of murders, including three in Waco County, and Vic Fiesel was seeing a field of red flags. 
indications that not only was Henry giving false confessions, but that the Lucas Task Force comprised of the top law enforcement agencies in the state, as well as the popular and influential, you know, shoot guns out of a plane sheriff, Jim Boutwell, Mm -hmm. were propping Lucas up Weekend at Bernie's style, that they were all in this really unhealthy symbiotic relationship. Right. And Vic at first was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to get all these high profile convictions on this guy, Henry Lee Lucas, like right out of the gate. Yeah. So he, it's good for him to go along with what the task force is telling him to go along with. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like to accept these confessions. Yes. But he didn't. Vic Fiesel impaneled a grand jury in Waco to investigate the murders of Rita Salazar and Glenn Parks, as well as the veracity of Henry Lee Lucas's confessions and the tactics of the Lucas task force, which also meant calling into question the work of the Texas Department of Public Safety, the DPS, which was headed up by former FBI bigwig, Jim Adams, and the legendary Texas Ranger. So he's stepping on a lot of toes here. Mm -hmm. The first day of the grand jury trial was April 11th, 1985. The big mass murderer or massive hoax article from Hugh Ainsworth that we talked about in the last episode, that came out on April 14th. So just like three days after this grand jury started. Damn. And on April 15th, Vic Fiesel announced that Henry Lee Lucas was going to be taken from Sheriff Boutwell's custody for the first time since 1983 and brought to Waco to testify. Sometime in here, Vic Fiesel wrestled Henry away from the task force boys in Georgetown and then took him on down to Waco. I couldn't find the exact date, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of all mixed in when you're searching through these archives, mixed in with both sides, taking shots with each other in the press, with Vic Fiesel clearly on the side of Hugh Ainsworth's version of events, and Jim Adams of the DPS calling Ainsworth's entire hoax article ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Adams' position was that they always knew Henry lied about something, so none of this was news, and that Henry only killed three people was stupid. (laughs) He's basically like, hey, man, he had to have done at least a hundred. Yeah, right? right. I mean, come on, man. Three. I mean, I've killed three people. You've <laughs> killed three. Who hasn't killed three people? Right. Uh, Sister Clemmy, mm-hmm. remember her? She, yeah. What did she do? She, she was like bathing him and cooking for him and letting him smoke cigarettes and let it, making him pray. Or not making him pray, but being his like spiritual guide to redemption. Yeah, right. So she's beside herself you know, losing him at Georgetown. She actually went down to Waco to visit Henry. And then when she got there, she was super worried that Henry was having a mental breakdown because Henry kept saying that he didn't, maybe he didn't kill any of these people. (laughs) And also he ate a sandwich with tomatoes on it. And Clemmy knew that he hated tomatoes. So she thought, this is going (laughs) off the rails. That's a hilarious marker for like prisoner (laughs) abuse or something. So Henry testified in a closed hearing on Wednesday, April 17th and recanted his confessions. He said investigators fed him information and made it super easy to confess and that it was time for him to stop, that he was hurting victims' families Mm -hmm. and 
allowing maybe hundreds of actual murderers to run free. Yeah, right. Sorry. And just to be clear, this confession he's making, who he's talking to now is this panel that Vic has put together, right? Right. Right. So this is not a court case. This no. is a grand jury hearing. It's an basically. investigation. Okay. And right. the focus of the investigation is... The task force. Yeah. It's, right. It's essentially to clear like these murders that he said he confessed to. In yeah. Waco. Okay. Yeah. Like it's to say, we're going to keep these cases open probably. Well, it's not to say that it's to investigate whether or not to keep those cases open and disregard Henry's confession. Yes. It's to investigate also. How did we get here? Yes. How did these confessions get like, how did we get these confessions? And then that in turn, is an investigation into the task force. Yes. Okay. We're investigating investigations at this point. Yes, we are. So after Henry testified, a tug of war over Henry started. The task force wanted him back. A federal grand jury wanted him elsewhere. And eventually Vic Fiesel lost control on April 24th, 1985. And that Actually happened to be the same day Henry Lee Lucas called into Good Morning America and put the task force on blast, claiming that they just basically drove him to crime scenes and told him what to say and threatened to send him back to prison if he didn't cooperate. Mm. So... (laughs) Good Morning America was having serial killers on their show back then? Yeah, he called in. And the lady looked freaked, man. I would. I mean, I could imagine. I mean, I'm. I don't really watch Good Morning America, but I've seen it in the recent past at your grandmother's house. I feel like it's a comedy routine now, right? Like it's like, what do you think about this guy with this cat? Like yeah. it's all human interest stuff. Am I wrong? I think they talk about some real news. Like I um, remember them talking about real news, but definitely not having serial killers call in. That's no, that's that seems like a lot, but I don't know. I feel like the '80s are this like unacknowledged period of just massive mayhem like mayhem and human growth you know we think oh when we went from horses to cars but the 80s are from something to internet you know well you know the guy i was talking about i mentioned him i guess back in episode one or something that i knew from odessa texas who grew up in like the oil fields his family like worked the fields and you know really got destroyed with poverty when the bust happened and all that kind of stuff. He was saying a big part of life in the eighties, especially in this area was like materialism. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was just really saying like, that was like a major thing. And somehow that connected to good morning America for me. I forget the strain I'm on. (laughs) I think it was, I think basically it was just like capitalism was like going ape shit. Yeah, yeah. So, like, we talked about in the Patreon episode how everyone in Dallas would call their Rolexes, like, Dallas Timexes. Yeah. And everyone had helicopters and everything. I think people were just like, money, 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 product, 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 consume, consume, consume. So, I think Good Morning America is like, we got a serial killer who will talk to us? Put him on the air. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, with this Good Morning America appearance, right, Mm -hmm. and this you know, testifying at the grand jury and then all of this stuff happening in the press. At this point, Waco is like a hornet's nest or, you know, the center of the hornet's nest with hornets all over the country. (laughs) Uh, Some police departments are dropping their cases against Henry. Uh Other DAs are super mad that all the bad press is jeopardizing their cases against Henry. Sure. Vic Fiesel is doing interviews implying the Texas Rangers were unethical and others are coming out saying Vic Fiesel should be thrown in jail for 
even thinking these things. The whole thing was madness. <laughs> and then on May 17th, Vic Fiesel announced at a Waco Lions Club dinner that he was being investigated by the DPS. What's the DPS? The Department of... Are you kidding me? What? Sorry. Department of Public Safety? Yeah. Okay. We talk about this. Who, Sorry. Who runs it? I can't remember his name. <laughs> Jim Adams. This Jim Adams. Important. Yes. Okay. okay. Jim Adams. I've, runs- tried, I've tried to repeat this like 40 times. I just thought it was like, I don't know, dirty public sewage. I just couldn't remember exactly. Okay, what it was. fine. Yeah. So he announces that he's personally being investigated <laughs> by the DPS. Vic says he went to DPS headquarters to talk with the DPS head, Jim Adams, and ask for money to extend these grand jury sessions. Apparently, he's like, no, but I'll do you one better. (laughs) Jim Adams told Vic he wasn't getting another dollar for the investigation. They weren't going to reopen a single Henry Lee Lucas case and that the DPS was opening an investigation on Fiesel and his staff instead. Hilarious. So, or maybe not hilarious, but also that's quite the turn of events. It's like going to your boss and asking for a raise, and it's like, actually, actually you're fired. in jail now. <laughs> <laughs> so, without the money, Vic's grand jury was disbanded. Henry fought to stay in Waco, but was sent back with Sheriff Boutwell to Georgetown, who immediately sent him to prison. On the morning of June 21st, 1985, Henry left the Georgetown jail where he drank milkshakes, smoked cartons of cigarettes, and found Jesus and a father. And while he moved freely without handcuffs at Georgetown, he was sent to the Huntsville State Penitentiary in leg and waist chains where he was transferred to death row with 11 murder convictions. Mm-hmm. According to Jim Phillips for the Austin American Statesman, Sheriff Jim Boutwell had this to say, quote, I got rid of a star border. The plans were to send him on down anyway. Nobody's been pushing for it with the task force operating. But when he got up to Waco and changed his story, there was no need of us hanging on to him. We didn't question him, but he volunteered the fact that he didn't kill anybody and that he expects to be a free man. When asked for his final thoughts on the saga, Boutwell said, quote, I have mixed emotions about it. First of all, it's a relief he's gone, but it's a disappointment the task force was not able to complete its work. Because of the actions in Waco, I feel like there are a number of homicides around the country that won't be solved now. So not that uh, they need to solve all these crimes. It's that they can't because now they can't put it on Henry Lee Lucas. That's an interesting way of putting it. I mm-hmm. think it's like, well, there's no other way to do this. <laughs> well, I guess that's that. <laughs> he did kill 19,000 people. Uh, you know, there's only one way to solve a murder, you know, and that's with the just a confession. If you don't have that, what are you going to do, man? All right. <laughs> Less than a month later, uh-huh. in July, District Attorney Vic Fiesel told Gail Reeves at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that someone from local law enforcement told him he might be in line for a shooting 
or a car bomb in the coming months. Ooh. Quote, I am the subject of a federal grand jury investigation because I said that task force members may have acted unethically or inappropriately, some mealy-mouthed language. As a result of that small intrusion into the pride of the Texas Rangers, I may be indicted. So she asked if he did think that they had been acting unethically, and Vic replied that answering that question, quote, could get me indicted or murdered. Damn. So big shots fired. Yeah. Is he telling the truth? We're gonna we're gonna find out. We're I just talking about all this stuff. I today. know that's hilarious. <laughs> he's he's just lying. He's like, yeah, they say they're gonna kill me now. It's like they're totally haters. But he is. He's like uh-huh. out there. The headlines in the press are. Yeah. Vic Fizel fears for his life. Vic also added this sort of technical piece of information that misconduct allegations of district attorneys were usually investigated by the Texas Attorney General's office, not the DPS. The Texas Attorney General at the time, Jim Maddox, was totally a fan of Vic Fiesel's and also skeptical of the Lucas Task Force. But Vic said Jim Maddox wasn't involved in all in this shadow investigation. Instead, as far as he knew, the allegations against him were being investigated only by the DPS in concert with the FBI. And if you remember Jim Adams, definitely you don't remember. Yeah, me. the head of the DPS. I am- <laughs> No, no. <laughs> He's also a former high-ranking official at the FBI. No, I'm sorry. I forgot that part. <laughs> don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. <laughs> Well, that's why I'm reminding you, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> If you remember Jim uh-huh. Adams, he's the former high-ranking official at the FBI. Uh-huh. So it's super weird the FBI is coming in. Okay. Jim Adams wouldn't confirm or deny at the time any investigation into Fiesel, but he said the DPS wasn't in the business of witch hunts. Mm-hmm. By August of the same year, the federal grand jury investigation into Vic Fiesel was public and Channel 8 News was running a series on Vic. So while prosecutors involved in this case weren't giving any specifics, somehow the series on Channel 8 produced by reporter Charles Duncan had the goods that the FBI was investigating a list of people with drunk driving and drug charges who were friendly with Vic's office and given unusually light sentences after paying some suspiciously high attorney fees. Okay, so Vic's being shady with his power, getting his friends off the hook. Right, and the only person who has the scoop Uh is this guy at Channel 8 News. Okay. So now, apparently, Jim Adams had the FBI involved and... He also had an old school friend of his who happened to be the Waco city manager who was also launching an investigation against Vic Fiesel, a city investigation, and he was working in concert with the Waco chief of police. So there seemed to be a lot of piling up on old Vic. Mm -hmm. Vic Fiesel, who moonlighted as a Baptist preacher, compared himself to Lazarus, okay, Jesus, good, David, Allah, David and Goliath, okay, and also the little boy in the Emperor Has No Clothes story. What does that little boy do? He's the one he that's tells st- the Emperor he doesn't have any clothes on. <laughs> uh, the DPS is the Emperor, by the way, in case that. <laughs> 
was a little unclear. <laughs> You were, you were. Uh, diaper poopy shorts <laughs> okay. dps okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> um that's hilarious i feel like i don't know it's like once you compare yourself to jesus it seems like everything else is a big like you know comeback after that you know or let down after that yeah you know I, mean, I mean i think what his thing is is like how close of a metaphor is it to my life uh-huh right yeah but i get it it's yeah I mean, sometimes you're babe ruth and Sometimes you're Joey Cora. Shout out to all of my old school Mariners fans. Okay. <sighs> no idea what you're talking about. All right. <laughs> there were a lot of local politics involved at this point that I just can't dissect. But mm-hmm. the main takeaway was that some thought Vic Fiesel was a victim of a conspiracy. And then others thought he's a crooked DA trying to cover his tracks with this outlandish conspiracy story. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Jim Adams did play that's the guy who runs the dps yeah i know <laughs> he, you give him what does he have like a funny ponytail or something or he all walks around in like snakeskin boots i need you know what i'm saying you can't start your story with a guy with a glass eye and a handful of teeth and then just expect me to just know everyone else he's oh, the guy from the fbi they, i did i know who he is i know god damn <laughs> so jim adams did play <laughs> An invest uh, an interesting part mm-hmm. in the history of the FBI. So I'm going to take a stab at this, but I'm just medium smart, so bear with me. It's kind of gotcha. complicated. Okay. I'm sure I'm going to say something dumb. As I understand it, from 1956 to 1971, the FBI ran a controversial program called Co-Intel Pro. So it's you might have heard of this. I have, but uh-huh. just kind of in a vague way. Me too. So it started out targeting communists in the U.S., but it grew to include other groups, the KKK, the Socialist Workers Party, the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King Jr., to name a few. Right. So these were all groups or people the FBI and or Director J. Edgar Hoover thought to be a threat to U.S. political stability. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the goal of this program was to, quote, neutralize and discredit these people or groups to derail whatever was deemed by higher-ups as a subversive social movement. Neutralize. I know, it's really freaky. So the tactics of this, quote, neutralize and discredit campaign included things like intense surveillance, police harassment, infiltration of organizations, and in the case of MLK, uh, drastic smear campaigns, Mm -hmm. and compiling about half a million dossiers on all kinds of people, students involved in activism, people identifying as communists, feminists, black people, anti-war groups, just about like whoever. Right. In 1971, the FBI got called out when the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI stole a bunch of FBI files and released them to the public. And then in 1975, the U.S. Senate launched a huge investigation into what boils down to the FBI violating the First Amendment rights of U.S. citizens. One of the FBI officials compelled to testify at these hearings was... 
Jim, Jim Adams. Adams. <laughs> so at this point, he was a two-time associate director of the FBI. He also served as acting director and associate director at some point. So he was really high up. And he had been working for the FBI since 1951. So his entire career uh-huh. spanned the entire you know life of this co-Intel Pro program. At his hearing... Adams saucily testified that the FBI is damned for doing too much and damned for doing too little, which I've heard that quote before, Uh but eventually conceded that in the end, they probably did a little bit too extra. (laughs) Some of those assassinations might have been because of us. I don't know. We're, you know, maybe, maybe we went a little far. All that to say... Jim Adams had been around the block. Maybe he picked up a thing or two. Mm-hmm. And this was not lost on Vic Fiesel. Because at, as time went by, evidence surfaced that Vic was the victim of wiretaps. Someone poisoned Spanky, the Fiesel's family dog. Oh, he man. received death threats. And in this bizarre way, he was just being absolutely creamed by this random reporter, Charles Mm -hmm. Duncan for Channel 8. Right, who's obviously getting some dope-ass leaks. At Channel 8, Charles Duncan kept pumping out stories, stories about Vic Fiesel taking bribes, being involved with drug rings, not prosecuting assaults on police officers. In total, Duncan aired 11 episodes starring Vic Fiesel's alleged dirty transgressions. So months go by, and on May 7th, 1986, Texas Attorney General Jim Maddox, who should have probably been heading this investigation in the first place, Mm -hmm. drops a report. These are the results of a year-long investigation into the work of the Lucas Task Force and the police departments who cleared these cases through his confessions. The big takeaways were Maddox found the police work was sloppy and blind and that there were lots of murders that Henry maybe could have done, but there were lots that he just couldn't have done based on the evidence. But like Hugh Ainsworth's work, it pointed to ragged holes in the cases, Mm -hmm. right? The report also claimed that law enforcement may not have done anything criminal, but it looked a lot like people were clearing murders just to get them off the books. The impact of the report was kind of like taking a stick and jamming it into that tiny hole in a wasp's nest and then just jerking it around. Like nothing was technically accomplished but it just made a big old splash. (laughs) The report basically just drew attention again to this Lucas task force and drew attention again to the bungling of some of these cases and then like buoyed up Vic Fiesel, which is annoying to everyone involved except for Vic Fiesel. (laughs) Uh uh (laughs) And another hornet in the side of the DPS and the Rangers. Do you in, mean Thorn? No. Another Thorn. I am making in the side? a metaphor. Another Hornet. Okay. <laughs> in 1986, Hugh Ainsworth and his co author, Jim Henderson, were listed as finalists for a Pulitzer Prize for their investigative work on Henry Lee Lucas. <laughs> Another stinger. Oh. Mm-hmm. With the public of Waco behind him, embattled district attorney Vic Fiesel easily won his re-election that year. Mm. So despite the fact 
<laughs> that everybody was coming after him. He still right. won. All those 11 news reports didn't do too much damage. Yeah. Fast forward to September 18th, 1986, same year, just in the fall. The FBI and the DPS took Vic Fiesel into custody on RICO charges in a surprise early morning arrest. Whoa, RICO. Which I feel like you could explain that. Racketeering something, something, something. It's basically what they do to get mobsters right. and locked re- up and, and rappers really lo- and stuff. Yeah, and really long sentences. Yeah, it basically means like if I'm a boss and someone commits a crime on my behalf that it's like on them and me. Yeah, right, right. And even though Vic had no idea the arrest was going to happen, Channel 8 had five cameras in place and set up before the arrest was even made. The FBI raided Vic's house at the same time, taking boxes of stuff. Vic later said one of his kids' toy syringes was labeled uh, narcotics paraphernalia. Uh And Vic Fiesel was facing 80 years in prison. In the spring of 1987, Jim Adams retired from the DPS and Vic Fiesel went to trial. Basically, Vic was accused of reducing or dropping criminal charges for people in exchange for a cut of legal fees. That he worked with this tight circle of attorneys who he would send people to, right? And then they would overcharge them and give Vic a kickback. Mm. So if you had a DUI, he would give you a light sentence, but then he would say, but you need this defense attorney, and that defense attorney would then charge you triple the amount, and then they'd all split the proceeds. It's a great hustle if you don't get caught. Right. (laughs) There were 14 charges against him, which constituted a pattern of racketeering activity, and that carries a much heftier sentence. Mm -hmm. Vic's lawyers stuck with their story that this entire thing was retaliation for his criticism of the Lucas task force and was perpetrated by the head of DPS, Jim Adams. The prosecution based its case off of two lawyers who claimed Vic asked for a third of the legal fees for cases that Vic sent their way. Lawyers who were coincidentally drowning in IRS trouble and who were offered immunity for that trouble, for their testimonies. Mm. Five weeks later, on June 29th, 1987, after the prosecution called over 60 witnesses, Vic Fiesel was found not guilty on all charges. Wow. That it just was not provable in any way. The next day, Vic went back to work, but by 1988, he had resigned his position, quit all political aspirations, and gotten divorced. Wow. He resigned in 1988 to start his private practice back up, in part because of his staggering legal debt. It was around $200,000, which would be about half a million in today's money. Mm-hmm. During all these shenanigans, Vic wanted to sue someone really, really <laughs> bad. <laughs> He wanted to sue the Texas Rangers, Uh the FBI. He wanted to sue them all. But everyone he had in mind had governmental immunity, leaving the obvious choice, reporter Charles Duncan and Channel 8 News. So he sued them good for libel. 
He even got an early start on it right after his reelection and months before his grand jury trial even started. Vic got the revenge ball going by filing a libel lawsuit against Duncan's employer, WFAA TV. So even before he knew whether or not he was being found guilty Mm -hmm. or innocent, he had already started this libel case. Did he win that? The libel suit went to trial in the summer of 1991. The crux of the argument was that this reporter, Charles Duncan, worked with law enforcement officials to create his multi-part TV series, painting Vic as a corrupt, grifting DA living off of thousands of dollars worth of kickbacks. Mm -hmm. Vic's legal team asserted the claim was false. The station didn't properly vet the information and that the TV series was actually a smear campaign conducted by the FBI, the DPS, and law enforcement in retaliation for Vic Fiesel's criticism of the Lucas Task Force. So that's big claims, right? Mm -hmm. Little tin hat foily, tin foil hat e. Well, one cool part about the civil case was now Vic's legal team could issue subpoenas for documents they couldn't access before related to Vic's federal grand jury case. They could really see the inner workings of some of this stuff. With these memos and documents and reporter Charles Duncan's testimony, they were able to piece together a story. So that story is that right after Vic Fiesel had Henry Lee Lucas transferred from Georgetown to Waco, Sheriff Boutwell had a meeting. The meeting included Ron Boyder, who is a DPS officer and right-hand man of Jim Adams, an FBI agent, and the assistant U.S. attorney general. Then a few weeks later, DPS officer Ron Boyder held a private meeting at a Ramada Inn with Channel 8 news reporter Charles Duncan. There, Boyder gave Charles Duncan the information about Vic's alleged racketeering scheme, which was the basis for Duncan's multi-part expose mm-hmm. on Vic, right? Mm-hmm. So here's where it gets even crazier. Later, the tapes of the expose were shown to the federal grand jury investigating Vic as proof of his misbehavior. So the series Mm -hmm. created by Charles Duncan on this set of information, which was created without any witnesses or any primary documents, were the basis for the grand jury moving forward to indict Vic on charges that could have sent him to prison for the rest of his life. Right, right. So this is so he's definitely winning this libel case because <laughs> basically he's like I mean if that's not libel what is I don't know. the libel trial was real rough for uh-huh. the Charles Duncan Channel Eight side yeah Duncan took the stand for eleven days telling uh-huh. the story of working with DPS officer Boyder on the series and then working with other law enforcement sources uh-huh. and then. Waco police officers who Duncan cited as primary sources for the TV series got up there and testified and they denied every single thing that Charles Duncan said. They said, I don't know. I never gave that information. Mm. The same thing with Ron Boyder, you know, basically like, I don't know. So they just use this guy Duncan as a straight up pawn. They just screwed that guy over. Who knows? This is just what happened. I doubt he was making it up. I'm sure that is what happened. All it is, it's like, this is what, was existing. Uh-huh. It's like Duncan's side of the story, sure. a couple memos, and then mm-hmm. 
the other side was these guys are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Uh-huh. And then there was all this petty stuff. Like there was the drawing that Charles Duncan commissioned of Vic Fiesel Scrooge McDucking a giant stack of $100 bills at his desk to like use in the series as if it's a reenactment or something. Uh, there were like lies about Vic being a draft dodger when uh-huh. he got this prestigious internship gig as a 17 year old uh-huh. so that was a lie uh-huh. lies about his record as a prosecutor and of course this looming question how duncan and channel Eight news were the only news agencies present for vic's early morning arrest mm-hmm. no other press had been alerted and the indictment was sealed mm-hmm. so nobody should have known mm-hmm. who tipped him off you know WFAA TV station executives testified also, and they admitted it had never even occurred to them that this information being fed to Duncan could be part of a smear campaign. All of the information they admitted was just taken at face value. So the libel trial ended with Vic Fiesel winning a $58 million verdict. That was the largest award in a libel case in U.S. history, and it made the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, man. I guess just, like, good job, dude. I don't know what to say to that. That's the wildest story. (laughs) I just feel like that's so bizarre. Anyway, Vic settled for a smaller amount later, but he still lives in a big old mansion, and he's doing just fine. (laughs) Uh So that's not where we're going to end today. About two months... After winning his libel case in 1991, Vic Fiesel made yet another power move. He became Henry Lee Lucas's defense attorney. Really? Yeah. From 1991 to 1994. That's a pretty good twist. Yeah. Vic represented Henry in various cases where DNA or other evidence brought his confessions into question. Mm -hmm. And he was really vocal for years that he felt the majority or possibly all of the murders cleared by the task force were the result of false confessions. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, a curveball appeared. On October 2nd, 1994, a woman claiming to be Henry Lee Lucas's murdered 15-year-old girlfriend, Becky Powell, appeared on CNN and claimed she had been living in Missouri for 12 years under the name Phyllis Wilcox. Is that real? Yeah. She never died? Becky was never killed? Wait, hold on. Please tell me that that's real. I can't tell what you're doing here. I hate what you're doing. Is that real? Did she? Is that really her? So she said in 1988... That she read, you made me laugh. What is I, funny about this? Stop, because you're acting so <laughs> Well, you're the one who saved this tidbit for this, what, moment in time for dramatic payoff, and it worked, and now you're like, how dare you be... I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. This is boring, man. No, Just keep going. I'm not, not even going to react, bro. So she said, it's not your reaction. It's you're demanding that I tell you. <laughs> So she said in 1988, Uh she read a book about Henry's life and realized he was in prison serving time for her murder. She told CNN, quote, I was shocked to learn I was dead in this very flat, slow, deadpan way. 
The woman claimed she had seen Henry three times in prison and had been writing to him for years, but was afraid to come forward because Henry had implicated her in some of his murder sprees. Oh. So this alleged Becky said she met Lucas through her uncle, Otis Tool in Jacksonville, Florida, and was actually with him trick-or-treating on Halloween 1979 when the Orange Sox victim was killed. Mm. According to Becky, she left Henry for a trucker in the August of 1982 just because she was tired of being broke and hungry. And she ended up living with the trucker and marrying him. His name was Dwayne Kurt, and she had been living with him for 12 years. So that story was true. Mm. Maybe. So mm. Hugh Ainsworth. <laughs> You're driving me insane. Hugh Ainsworth uh-huh. thought she was absolutely for sure Becky Powell. Uh-huh. The DPS called her a kook. And Texas Ranger Phil Ryan, mm-hmm. if you remember, was one of the original investigators in the Henry Lee Lucas case. Mm-hmm. He said... He was curious. He had a lot of questions for her. Sure. Vic Fiesel, totally convinced. He was actually the person who had tracked her down. At some point in the 90s, Henry had started to change his story about murdering his girlfriend back in 1982. And Henry started insisting to Vic Fiesel that Becky was alive because Becky had been sending him letters So riding high on his victories, Vic had the chance to make a hard swing. Maybe Henry didn't commit any murders cleared by the task force. Maybe he didn't even kill Becky Powell. The letters were postmarked from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So Vic Fiesel hired an investigator and they went down to Missouri to try and find Becky Powell. And they did. They said she was 27 she knew everything about Otis Tool, her supposed uncle, and the house that they lived in together in Jackson, Florida. She introduced them to her husband, the trucker who had picked her up that night in 1982, and convinced Vic flew her to Austin to take a polygraph test, which she passed with flying colors. So it's really her. Vic took the story public, and she had this interview with CNN. So I want to cheer, but I'm not supposed to do anything. That's crazy good news. From how I understand it, Becky Powell's biological brother, Fred, was still alive. So there were plans to test her DNA against his. Mm -hmm. Texas Ranger Phil Ryan was pretty skeptical because Henry straight up showed him Becky's bones. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, there's always that. He was there when he goes, yeah. he took me to a grove of trees and said, there's some bones over there and there were bones. So uh-huh. he said, I I just, I feel like that seemed pretty real to me. Yeah. And something in Phil Ryan's skepticism made Vic Fiesel's spidey senses tingle. So Becky had been staying at Vic Fiesel's mansion with his family. So when she was out, Vic had his wife go through her luggage and she found this massive stack of letters from Henry detailing every inch of Becky Powell's life. Oh man. So she's an imposter. Muriel. Okay. So like three days. She brought it with her. (laughs) Yeah. 
she's like she's a very uh interesting character like three days after speaking with cnn and this huge uh-huh. like gloat fest the gang finds out this lady was absolutely not becky powell oh, shit. she was 41 year old phyllis wilcox from missouri she used her real name for the scheme she didn't even make anything up and her ass had already visited serial killers before in prison. Oh, she, she had, loves them. She had been in contact with Charles Manson uh-huh. and John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found all this. I was looking for more stuff about her, but it's kind of hard to find anything. I did find all of this stuff for sale on this memorabilia website addressed to Phyllis Wilcox from different famous killers. Like there is a letter for sale from Charles Manson to Phyllis. There's a signed picture that Phyllis took of herself and addressed to serial killer Jerry Brudos, who's the shoe fetish slayer. Um, There's also like an envelope of a letter that some guy on death row who is about to be killed sent, you know, Mm -hmm. a letter to Phyllis. I guess if you're going to have a hobby, you know. It's pretty wild. She said she was in love with Henry and she wanted to bust him out of prison and that he was the nicest man she had ever met. Phyllis claimed Henry from prison had been coaching her to help him get off death row. Uh Also, in 1995, Phyllis apparently was on the Jerry Springer show, but I couldn't find any footage. Oh, man. I was really looking for a transcript. Oh, whoa. Do you know what epi- what the episode was? It aired in February of 1995. There was just like a press release about it, but then nothing else. Oh, man. R.I.P. Jerry, by the way. I know. I... Oh, I want to know what it is so bad. I know, me too. Oh, man. Okay. That... This... Is this... What is up with all these twists? <laughs> I can't believe you saved this for the end of this episode. So, Texas Ranger Phil Ryan told the Odessa American... Quote, man, oh, man, (laughs) it's just because the way Henry is and the kind of people that surround him, it's just a circus that won't leave town. (laughs) He also was like, Uh, I knew it wasn't Becky. I had it. He goes, I'm glad we looked into it. Yeah. But she was obviously in her 40s and Uh, Becky's supposed to be 27. So that was the first time he was uh, like, that's not her. So R.I.P. Becky. Vic Fiesel told the Houston Chronicle, quote, I feel... Like I owe the Texas Rangers an apology because I see how easy it is to be duped. Oh. And it's true. I mean, that's Uh what people were saying. It's like you got tricked the same way we did. So it's super easy to believe the things you want to believe. Yeah. So after publicly eating a giant pile of shit, Vic Fiesel dropped Henry Lee Lucas as a client. Henry was devastated, mm. sobbing to the press. I guess every week or every two weeks, he had a press junket where he would be able to talk to a bunch of news outlets at the same time. Mm-hmm. So in that, he was just sobbing to the press about how he was being railroaded, that he didn't know why the woman had changed her story, but he knew Phyllis Wilcox was Becky Powell. Great. So the next episode... We finish up our series with a cameo from George W. Bush, a sentence change for Henry, a deep dive into Henry's childhood and the murder of Viola, his mother. And then we're going to go through some of the murder cases cleared by the Lucas Task Force and the state of those investigations today. Yeah. 
Are we going to talk more about Becky or Grandma yeah, Kate in the bit. last one? Yeah. I just want to know, like, did he ever, he never, did he, does he give reasons that can be at all, um, you know, paid attention to? I will give you this one. Uh-huh. He doesn't ever that I could find give any reason for the Kate Rich murder. Uh-huh. There's some sort of speculation that he killed Becky and then admitted that to Kate Rich and she had some sort of bad reaction. So he killed her uh-huh. was the idea is that maybe he was covering his tracks for killing Becky. Uh-huh. Um, next episode, we're going to talk about this guy growing up in this pretty horrific environment in Blacksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about his adolescence and all of the institutions that he was in. We're going to talk about his murder of his mother, Viola, and then his institutionalization after that. And then this period of time where he traveled around with Otis Tool and meeting Becky and what that relationship actually looked like. He met her when she was 13 his early life is interesting to me because he, he did a lot of really, really awful things. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's interesting when you're talking about this guy being the confession killer, right? Which kind of implies that he's innocent. It's, you know, that he's he's confessed all these murders, but he didn't do them. But in the scope of his life, he still did a lot of really terrible things. And it's kind of interesting to look at the fabled version of him Mm -hmm. versus what we know about the reality of what his life was like. So that's what we're going to do next week is just talk about what we know of the reality of that life. I still feel like I got twisted around with this whole Becky's alive thing. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, everybody did. Can you imagine being Vic Fiesel in that situation? That's embarrassing. (laughs) I don't feel bad for him. Are you kidding? I don't feel that. I don't feel bad for him. I feel bad for Becky and her family. Um, of course, Nick. <laughs> Muriel, you know, out here, cold blooded. You're the one saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's not turn on each other. I think we might be all we have in this world. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's true. I have my cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have that same cat. <laughs> I'll steal him in the middle of the night, you know. Get your ass out of here. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast is recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you're loving this epic, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who would enjoy it as well. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Other great ways to help the show include leaving us review on Apple Podcasts. Rating and following us on Spotify. Connecting with us on social media. Plus, we love hearing from you. Our DMs are open and you can email us. So you can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode or you can visit murders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. All right, see you next time for part five. Here we go. <laughs>